Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Well, if you brought your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua 23. As we take a look at Joshua's blueprint for victory, Joshua 23. Uh, As you're turning there, let me ask you, as we glance back over this past year, the year that was 2021, what kind of legacy did you leave behind? And what sort of legacy are you looking to build in 2022? And how do you plan to accomplish that? And when you reach the finish line, will you stand victorious? Now, if you're a movie buff, you may recall a movie back in the 1990s called Mr. Holland's Opus. It's a movie about a frustrated composer in Portland, Oregon. He takes a job as a high school band director in the 1960s. Now, his career goal was to achieve critical fame as a classical musician and composer. So at first, he thinks that his teaching job is just going to be temporary. He ultimately learns, though, that his dream of leaving a lasting legacy as a composer, that's just that. It's only a dream. And at the end of the movie, we find an aged Mr. Holland just fighting in vain to keep his job. The school board rewards his decades of faithful service by cruelly downsizing his program. And when he is taught his final class, with regret and sorrow, he leaves his classroom. And as he's walking down the hall, Mr. Holland hears some noise in the auditorium, so he opens the door to see what the commotion is. To his amazement, He sees a capacity audience of former students and teaching colleagues and a banner that reads, Goodbye, Mr. Holland. He's greeted with a standing ovation while a band uh, consisting of both past and present members plays songs that they learned at his hand. Surprisingly, the governor of Oregon is in attendance, and she is none other than a student that Mr. Holland had helped to believe in herself back during his first year of teaching. And she addresses the audience. Mr. Holland had a profound influence in my life on a lot of lives, I know. And yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his life misspent. Might be easy for him to think himself a failure, but he'd be wrong. Looking at her former teacher, the governor said, look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched, and each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. We are the music of your life. Now, in this passage we're going to read here in just a moment, we find an elderly Joshua whose deeds and leadership have really become 
an, an opus, if you will, to those whose lives he's influenced for so many years. He's leaving behind a legacy of his own, a legacy of faithfulness to God and to God's covenant. And in Joshua 23, we find him delivering a, a pep talk to those that he had served for so many years. So read with me if you would. I'm going to be reading from the, the Christian Standard Bible this morning. But Joshua 23, beginning in verse 3, Joshua says this, You have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account. Because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. See, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribes, including all the nations I have destroyed from the Jordan westward to the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord your God will force them back on your account and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you do not turn from it to the right or left and so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on their names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow and worship to them. Instead, be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been to this day. The Lord has driven out great and powerful nations before you, and no one is able to stand against you to this day. One of you routed a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you as he promised. So diligently watch yourselves. Love the Lord your God. Now, let me give you a, a little bit of historical context that will kind of frame these uh, verses we're going to be looking at, the ones we just read. As the book of Joshua opens, we find that one chapter in history of God's people has closed, and the mantle of leadership has been transferred from Moses to Joshua. Now, as we near the end of the book of Joshua, here in Joshua 23, we find that after years of successfully leading God's people to victory in the promised land, another era is set to begin. Joshua has grown old. He's nearing the end of his life. Uh, and so he assembles the elders and the leaders and judges of Israel at the tabernacle at Shiloh. And here in chapter 23, in what would be his second to last farewell address, he tells them, you know, blessings are going to come to you if you do a couple of things. Number one, obey all that is in the book of law of Moses. And number two, don't associate with these nations that remain. But if they forsake the covenant with God and break the law or associate with these other nations, then God's going to bring divine consequences upon them, even exile from the land. So the instruction for them and the then and there was pretty specific. But I think there's also a message for us here in the here and now. We also have a covenant with God. Now, it's provided and sealed in the person of, and work of Jesus Christ who enabled us to be in right standing with God, to, to experience his goodness and his blessing and his victory. So there's definitely something for us to receive here in this passage this morning. Because in the middle of his address, we find 
Five key principles for living in, in what I call Joshua's blueprint for victory. A blueprint that was not only intended for his generation, but all of those generations of people of faith who followed. And here's the first principle I want you to see this morning from Joshua's blueprint for victory. We are to live in God's triumph. Now, as you read this passage, who is it that's providing victory? Well, even the most surface reading is good to show you it's God. He's the one who's promised it. He's the one who's delivered. Look at verse 3. It was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. Now look at verse 10. One of you routed a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you. Verse 5 advises them to trust God for victory because the Lord your God will force them back and drive them out before you. I, I hope you're, you're seeing a pattern here, church. Uh, as you read the scriptures, you read it counts like this. You, you come to realize that the Lord your God, he's for you. You know, today I think we often suffer from the idea that victory in the Christian life is something that we achieve. Well, you, you know, if I'm diligent, if I work hard, I mind my P's and Q's, TCB, TCB, baby, taking care of business. No, that's, that's really not the way it works, is it? Yeah, oh yeah, sure. I mean, if, if, we're, if we're smart, if we're strong, if we're, if we're talented, maybe we could go on for a while. But, you know, ultimately, if we're left to our own wisdom, our own power, our own schemes, we're going to crash and burn. We will ultimately fail. But as you read the Old Testament narrative, time and time again in Old Testament history, we see God demonstrating that victory will only come by his hand. Uh, for example, uh, Joshua chapter 6, the battle of Jericho. You remember the instructions? Well, you know, I, I want you to carry this ark around this walled city of Jericho. I want you to do it once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, I want you to do it seven times. Then blow the trumpets, and the walls of this city are just going to fall in. <laughs> if I'd been on the receiving end of those instructions, I, I'm not sure what my reaction would be. You know, in their finite human minds, that battle plan of an infinite God probably didn't make a lick of sense. But you know what? They stuck with the plan. They won. Not because of their military might, not because of their strategy, but because they trusted God's instruction. Or consider uh, Judges chapter 7, the story of Gideon. The Israelites were facing an invasion from 135,000 Midianites. And God says, hey, Gideon, you know those 32,000 soldiers that you rounded up to try to defend yourselves against the Midianites? Yeah, forget it. You don't need them. All you need are 300 men that I'm going to designate for you, and you need my torches, trumpets, and jars planned. Now, <laughs> I know that couldn't have made much sense. It worked, though. If you remember the story, they encircled that Midianite camp in the middle of the night. 
They break the pitchers to expose the torches. They blow the trumpets. They shout for the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And, and sure enough, the Midianites turn on each other and start slaughtering each other in the, in the chaos. Now, the Israelites won. Not because of their military might or strategy, but again, because they trusted God's plan. Gideon trusted God's plan. And so we see that, you know, God's the one who deserves the glory for our success, for our triumphs. We need to live in that. We need to, to really embrace that, to live in God's triumph and understand that he's the one who's worthy of all the praise, all the credit for our success. Man, it, it warms my heart when I see successful people give all the glory to God for what he's done in their lives. Um, great example, Super Bowl 34. Seemed like the whole world was watching at the end of Super Bowl 34, a winning performance by the St. Louis Rams that, that capped a Cinderella story for the previously unknown Kurt Warner. And when Mike Tirico stuck a microphone in Kurt's face and said, hey, tell me about that last touchdown pass to Isaac Bruce. If you saw the game, you probably remember what Kurt said. He said, well, first things first, I want to thank my Lord and Savior up above. Thank you, Jesus. And it was so heartwarming that this man, the guy who had come through such extreme hardship both on and off the field and had gone from obscurity to league MVP, Super Bowl champion and Super Bowl, Super Bowl MVP and all in one season, so encouraging to see him give God the credit for victory. He gave credit where credit was due. Oh, by the way, there's a great movie that just came out a little over a week ago featuring that very story called American Underdog. But the point is we need to learn to live in God's triumph. Understand that he's the one who brings victory. Now, it stands to reason that if we're going to live in God's triumph, then we need to, number two, live in God's toughness. Look at the very beginning of verse six there. Three key words. Be very strong. Now, as you, as you read the scriptures, the, the, the exhortation to be strong is clear. But as you dig a little bit deeper, you realize the scriptures also establish the true source of that strength. Psalm 61, the psalmist says, You have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. Book of Joshua. If you go back to the beginning... Chapter 1, a set of instructions from God to Joshua and to the people, very similar to the ones we just read. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Church, I hope you understand that there's so much more to strengthen this life and can be measured in the weight room. Think about it. Where did Samson get the physical strength to overcome 3,000 Philistines? God. Where did George W. Bush find the emotional strength to lead the nation in the wake of the most devastating terrorist attack 
in human history. God, where do you think your true strength comes from? Now, some of you are probably thinking, no, 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 Derek, I can't, I can't be strong. I can't. Yes, you can. Or more to the point, God can through you. Now understand that you know, while these instructions were given to a very specific group of people in a very specific point in human history, several thousand years ago in Canaan, these principles for victory aren't principles that just applied to the Israelites in that specific moment. They're timeless. See, God is promising us that we can be victorious too in his might. Church, God wants to do amazing things through you. But they're things that can only be accomplished in his strength. I love Ephesians 3.20. Paul says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is it that unlocks that power? Faith. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, the apostle John wrote that everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So church, when you are struggling, when you are in pain, when you're feeling weak, just feeling beaten down, I want you to remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul suffered from what he described as a thorn in the flesh. Now, a lot of different Bible scholars you know, debate what that really was, some sort of physical ail ailment perhaps. Uh, some think it was failing eyesight. But here's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, after he sought the Lord for relief. But he, God, sent to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Joshua trusted the Lord to be his strength. Paul, in his infirmity, in his weakness, trusted the Lord to be his strength, and so should we. So in our blueprint for victory, first two things we've seen, number one, we are to live in God's triumph. And that naturally follows that number two, we live in God's toughness, his strength. But here's the third thing. Look at the end of verse six. Live by God's terms. End of verse 6 says this, continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law. Joshua is reminding them and us that we need to observe the precepts of God's instruction manual, not to deviate from those precepts. Why? Well, I want to share four specific things with you, and they're not in your sermon notes, so you might want to jot these down. Four reasons to live by God's term. The first is provision. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 1 for just a sec. Verse 8. 
God says this, this book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. A lot of you, uh, you, you love the Psalms. You've committed some of them to memory. One of the most recognizable ones is actually the one that opens the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. Verses 1 through 3 say that blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, prospers. We can count on God's provision if we're going to live by his terms. There's a second thing. If we live by God's terms, we're going to find purpose. Folks, I firmly believe that living according to God's rules brings order to my life instead of chaos. I I firmly believe that without his word to guide me, I would probably be dead or in jail by now. God's word ought to be a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths. God's word is what brings our lives into focus, makes his objectives for us clear. So living by God's terms brings provision, brings purpose, but it also brings the third thing, protection. Now, if you're a sports fan like me, have you, have you ever stopped to, stopped to wonder why there's so many stinking rules in athletics, specifically football? I mean, it just it drives me mad sometimes, the number of rules. Well, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, it's number one, to bring order to what would otherwise be a chaotic game. But then number two, to provide protection for the players. And some of these rules are pretty extreme. I mean, you know, that's why you can hardly breathe on that delicate daffodil that is a quarterback without getting a personal foul penalty for roughing the passer. But here's the point. We have been abiding by rules our entire lives. I mean, from the moment that we could walk, we've been hearing things like, no, 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 sweetie, mama's stove will burn. Or, son, it's not safe to play in the street. Well, you know, just as earthly parents give us rules for our protection, our Heavenly Father does the same thing. But you see, God doesn't place restrictions on us because he's some kind of cosmic killjoy that doesn't want us to ever have any fun in life. God places restrictions on our lives because he's got a better way, one that will bring us the greatest joy if we'll trust him. Folks, his plans are far, far better than the plans that we could ever devise for ourselves. And we need to trust that. We need to trust his wisdom, his ways. As he says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. In short, Father knows best. 
Now, the skeptics, the, the critics of Christianity, you know, they're going to wag a finger and say, well, you know, this Christianity stuff, it's nothing but just a, a form of legalism. You know, some kind of ethical system, just a bunch of rule keeping. Folks, we need to understand something. With God, it's the relationship that's important. That's the most important thing, not the rules. You know, it's God's love for us that created the rules. And it's our love for him that drives us to keep those rules. They exist for our provision and for our protection. He gives those to us because he loves us. And we follow them as a natural byproduct of our reciprocating love for him. We obey because we love him. So living by God's terms brings provision, purpose, protection. There's a fourth thing. It also brings purity. Psalm 119 is a, a love letter to the word of God by the psalmist. Psalm 119.11, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Folks, the truth of God's word is the beginning of all purity, of, of personal holiness. And it's that purity that really drives the fourth principle for victory this morning. We live in God's triumph. We live in God's toughness. We live by God's terms. But then the fourth thing, we live in God's tribe. Look at verse 7. Joshua is telling them, hey, do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow in worship to them. In other words, children of Israel, don't be hanging out with these people. They're a bad influence. Or as the Apostle Paul would say, bad company corrupts good morals. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, which begs the question, what kind of people are you surrounding yourself with, Christian? Now, in, in, in our lexicon of the Christian life, our, our Christianese, you might put it, one of the fancy terms that you hear a lot is sanctification. Well, preachers love that word. We love sanctification. You know, you, you're reading the story of Isaiah or whoever, and the preacher just loves to say, that man was sanctified. And so we, we love that word. And, you know, it's funny, we, we make it sound more complicated than it really is, but sanctification basically means this. You know, it's, it's God working in our lives to, to mold us and to shape us and to make us more like the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 says that, that uh, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So part of sanctification is God making us more like Jesus. But when you really study that word in the original Hebrew, what's at the heart of that term sanctification is simply being set apart. Being sanctified means being set apart. And that's exactly what Joshua is instructing them here. Now, unfortunately, the influence of pagan nations was a huge problem for the Israelites in the Old Testament. One that brought about unfortunate consequences on a number of occasions. We see it most profoundly during the time of Judges. A little bit later on in the Old Testament narrative, we see it uh, also in the, the time of the divided kingdom following Solomon's death. But time and again, 
The people would break the covenant. They'd rebel against God and they would worship these foreign gods. And that either resulted in a total rejection of God or in, in what theologians call syncretism. Okay, you, you don't have to remember that because there's not going to be a test later. But syncretism is basically a, a mixing together of different doctrines, beliefs from different religions. Think of it as kind of a religious smorgasbord. Ooh, I think I'll take a portion of monotheism, sprinkle in just a dabble of the occult, maybe a serving of idol worship, and presto, changeo, I've got my own personal religion. And some of that stuff was happening. Now, we, we think that can't happen today, and yet that's still a danger that we need to be mindful of. We need to learn to guard ourselves from ungodly influences. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23 says. Guard your heart. Now, that, that word heart comes from the Hebrew word lab. Uh, that word can be translated into English as either heart or mind. But when you dig deep and really examine what that Hebrew word speaks of, it's speaking of the, the operational center of your being. So it's your feelings, it's your intellect, it's your, your will, it's all of those things. So are you guarding the operational center of your being from ungodly influences? There's a term that computer programmers like to use, garbage in, garbage out. Now, what that means for us is that everything that you put into your, into your lab, your operational center, all that stuff's going to manifest itself in some form or fashion in your life. Everything that you let into your control center is going to have an effect. You know, it may, it may be the people that you choose to listen to or associate with. It could be the books you read. It could be the movies or TV shows that you watch, the music you listen to, the things you look at on the internet. And now just because you saw it on the internet doesn't mean it's legit. Oh, but I saw it on Facebook, so it's got to be true, right? Yeah, don't even get me started on, on that. <laughs> Folks, seek God's truth. When you find it, fill yourself with it. And then let it pour out into your life. Now, if you want to jump ahead to the New Testament, in the New Testament, the Apostle John issues a command that's kind of similar to the one that Joshua gave us in Joshua 23. First John chapter 2, verse 15, he warns, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what John is saying there. John is not saying, don't love people. I mean, if God so loved the world, then we ought to love the world too, in that sense. We should love people. My goodness, what kind of Christians would we even be if we didn't love the people in this world? As Christians, we know that we are to live in this world, but not be of the world. Now, that word, that word world that, that, that John uses there is, is cosmos. In a, in a very generic sense, cosmos can mean world or even universe. But according to the Greek lexicons, in this particular context, cosmos means the system of human existence in many aspects. In other words, John is talking about the world's 
philosophies, its ideologies, its mindset, its way of thinking. Or as the Amplified Bible puts it, do not love the world of sin that opposes God and his precepts, nor the things that are in the world. Simply put, Christian, stop letting the world influence you and start being an influence on the world. So here in verse 7, Joshua instructs the people to be set apart from these pagan nations in order to remain pure, holy, faithful to God. Okay, now, now we apply that to us. How do we remain pure? Now, we've already answered that. Psalm 119.11, I have treasured your word in my heart, my, my labe so that I might not sin against you. Here's the point that I'm I'm wanting you to get here. It is God's desire for our entire being to be saturated in his truth. And in this race that we call life, the truth of God's word kind of serves as the starting blocks in our quest for holiness. So what Joshua is saying is live in God's tribe. Be sanctified, be holy, be set apart in the way you live and think and believe. But, you know, if you're going to live in God's tribe, you've got to live in God's truth. All right, so there's a fifth step in Joshua's blueprint for victory. We live in God's triumph. We live in God's toughness. We live by God's terms. We live in God's tribe. And then finally, number five, We live with God thirst. Last thing that Joshua instructs in this passage was this. Love God. Now, that's expressed a couple of different ways. Uh, Verse 8, he says, be loyal to your God. That Hebrew word there is dabak. It means to, to be joined together, to cling to. In other words, you're going to grab onto God with both hands and hold on tight. That's what it means. Be loyal. Now, if you look at verse 11, Joshua commands very simply, love the Lord your God. Okay? Got it. So, how are we to love God? Jesus gave us the answer, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. He's quoting a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that's known as the Shema when he says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We love him with everything that we are, our whole being. Folks, I pray that my love for God grows in such a way that, that I hunger And I thirst for him more every day, just like the psalmists did. Uh, Psalm 42, 2, the sons of Korah, uh, they wrote, "My, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, 1, David declared, My soul thirsts for you. A.W. Tozier, who was a very well known pastor and author in the 20th century, he wrote, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness. And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. Oh God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst 
to be made more thirsty still. Church, let me ask you this question. Any of y'all have a favorite food? You know, for you, you know, it could be steak, ribs, seafood, ice cream. <laughs> ice cream doesn't sound particularly appealing on a day like today. Uh, now, for me, it used to be anything with the letter P, okay? Uh, pizza, popcorn, peanut butter, pie, pancakes, pasta, pastries. Yeah, you, you get the idea. And I'm happy to say that I actually was able to overcome those cravings, thank the Lord and Betty Ford. But now, I, I, I seriously, I, I have to confess to you that I am addicted to chicken nachos. Well, seriously, if you've ever read my, my social media profile, it will say something like this. It will describe me as a pastor, hubby, dad, scholar, Love Jesus, family, chicken nachos, college football, and beautiful melodies. <laughs> now, before Christy and I, before we moved to Lubbock 15 years ago, we had spent another 15 years living in Oklahoma City. And during our time there, I used to get my nacho fix from this place called Chilino's Mexican Restaurant. It's a chain that's all over central Oklahoma. And let me tell you something about those nachos. They are... Second to none. The, the chips were nice and thick, but not so thick that they're hard. The perfect blend of thickness and crispness. And spread over these chips was, was a layer of refried beans. Not ordinary refried beans. I mean, these, these refried beans had, had a very smoky flavor. In fact, if you had too much of them, they'd do some smoking of their own a little bit later on. But then on top of that, you've got uh, another layer of, of grilled chicken fajita meat. And then a very generous portion of cheese melted over the top. And if you're feeling really adventurous, they'd sprinkle jalapenos all over it. It was so, so good. But here's the thing. If I did not go to Chilino's Mexican restaurant at least once a week to get the deluxe chicken nachos, I would begin to get restless and irritable. If I went more than two weeks between visits, I would get downright obnoxious. If it was as much as a month, I would begin to withdraw from society. <laughs> of course, I'm being silly. Seriously, though, Psalm 34, 8 says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And folks, he is good. We rest in that today. We need to have such a hunger, such a thirst for God that we develop a dependence on him. But if we go without him, we get restless and irritable. We get obnoxious. Folks, knowing the Lord intimately, that ought to be our greatest desire. Just as Asaph wrote in Psalm 73, 25, and earth has nothing I desire Besides you, we live with God thirst. We love him above all else. Now, sadly, I think there's a lot of people that really don't even know what true love is, much less a love for God. You know, their, their concept of love is limited to the textbook definition, which will say something like uh, an intense feeling of tender affection or uh, a passionate feeling of romantic desire. 
It just—it makes me laugh. Folks, love is not something that you read about in Maxim or Cosmo or you see on the bold and the beautiful. Love is not this, this warm, squishy feeling you get inside that quickens your pulse when you see an attractive person come through the door. That's not love. Love is a verb. Love is a, it's a way of life. Love is sacrifice. It's a lifetime of honoring and serving the needs of those you care for at the exclusion of your own needs, if need be. Likewise, our love for God isn't simply an emotion. It's a commitment of our entire being to him. It's loving the Lord with your life. How do we love the Lord? With all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Do you have a love relationship with God? I like what Amy Carmichael once wrote. She said, before the winds that blow do cease, teach me to dwell within thy calm. Before the peace has passed in, before the painting has passed in peace, give me, my God, to sing a song. Let me not lose the chance to prove the fullness of enabling love. Oh, love of God, do this for me. Maintain a constant victory. Christian, like Joshua, do you want to leave behind a legacy? Then leave behind a legacy of victory. Let people recognize you by your consistent devotion to the gospel, by your obedience to God's word, and the fruit that your life bears because of that obedience. You know, Joshua's game plan here for victorious living, it was a sound one. We live in God's triumph, his victory. We live in God's toughness, his strength. We live by God's terms. We live according to his word. We live in God's tribe, meaning we walk in holiness. We're sanctified, set apart. And we live with God thirst. We love God. Folks, God has given us the means to live a victorious life. But you know what? That victory that we live, it pales in comparison to the ultimate victory. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory. Where death is your sting. Sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. Folks, Jesus has given us the victory. He has overcome the power and the penalty of sin and death. And just as lasting victory in this life is not something that we can achieve on our own, eternal life is the same. We can't earn it. We can't achieve immortality. It's a gift. It's God saying, I love you. And because I love you, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to spend eternity with you. And he's provided the means. But here's the cool thing. You know that eternal life that we have with him? 
It doesn't begin the moment we die. It begins the moment that you say yes to Jesus Christ, the one who said, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. That's John 10, 10. Okay, some of you who are here or maybe are watching online this morning, you're thinking, okay, that, that's great. But how do I say yes to Jesus? How do I accept his gift? It's pretty simple. You know, it starts by, first of all, admitting that I'm a sinner. Knowing that I've done things that displease God. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's a penalty for that. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Death meaning eternal separation from God. And so we admit that. We admit our lostness. We admit our need. And we repent of that. Repent means to just change your mind. Go the other way. And we acknowledge our need for him. We ask for his forgiveness. It is so awesome. You know, Romans 5, 8 says that, that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We acknowledge that, that he died in our place. And so we ask for forgiveness and we trust in that work that he did on the cross. And then we commit ourselves to him. Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I admit I'm a sinner. I repent of that. I acknowledge my need. I ask him for forgiveness. And then I trust in what he did on the cross in my place. And I commit my life, all the rest of my life to him. If you've never made that decision today, I challenge you. I beg you, don't go another day without Jesus. Whether you're here in the audience today or watching online, I ask you to consider giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ. There is joy unspeakable in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, that we don't have to, to limp or crawl through this life in defeat. Yes, life is hard. We know that. We acknowledge that for a Christian, uh, apart from the strength of your Holy Spirit, we can't live this life. But we thank you that you have provided a way for us to live victoriously. I pray for Christians who needed to hear that today, who are feeling beat down, defeated, and I pray that you would encourage their hearts for those who need to make a course correction and just walk in obedience so that they can experience victory once more. I pray for their, your Holy Spirit to work in their lives. But Father, I know that there are people who are hearing this message today who've never come to that crucial moment of decision. Said, yes, God, I believe in your son. And I believe that he died in my place to purchase my pardon. And I'm trusting in that finished work. I'm asking you to save me. Lord, so I pray that you do work in their hearts and their lives to bring them to a point of brokenness and acceptance and transformation. 
or not so that we can say, hey, look what, look what God's done, or look what I've done, but or we can say, Lord, look what you've done in me and through me. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do, Lord, because people have said yes to Jesus Christ. Father, as we prepare to move on from this place this morning, I just pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to reign in us. We acknowledge that you can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power. We're counting on it. We're counting on you to work through us to accomplish your will and your purposes, to build your kingdom, to make your name great. Lord, that's why we exist. We exist for your glory. So we give it to you freely today. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you're here today and you've made that decision to trust Christ for salvation, wow, we'd love to hear about that. If you're here in person, uh, we'd love, we've got some of the pastors here on site that would love to talk to you afterwards. Uh, you can also take a communication card that's in the back, uh, or you should have gotten one as you came in. Uh, fill that out, drop it in the uh, box on the way out, or scan the QR code on the back of your seat and share that decision with us so we can better know how to minister to you. If you're watching online this morning, just click that connect button there in the uh, user interface, and that'll give you a chance to share that decision with, with us. I thank you all for your presence here today. Some of you, it was hard. It was hard for you to get here. And uh, it's, a, it's encouragement to see your faithfulness. Southcrest, I love you. And I love the God who made you. Hope you have a wonderful 22, uh, 2022. Uh, please be careful going home this morning. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.